0: Welcome, everyone, to another edition of This Nanup Life. I'm Peter Sprivelis, and this is my observations of what we are doing on and to the planet we all call home from my base here in Nanup, down in the southwest corner of Western Australia. If you haven't done so already, please head over to the website, thisnanuplife.net, and subscribe to receive updates about new podcast episodes and the accompanying blog posts, and leave comments. It would be great to hear from you. Okay, in my last episode, I promised that I would do further episodes looking at what things we really can do to reduce emissions, given that we have a significant issue at the moment in the technology supporting renewables, and particularly our ability to store renewable power and reuse it over weeks to months timescales. So I thought a good place to start would be to look at transport as a domain given that fossil fuel powered transport contributes about a fifth of global carbon dioxide emissions and what things we can expect over the next one or two decades in terms of reduced emissions from transport. So let's get started. The absurdity of two friends choosing to fly nearly 8,000 kilometres from England to Malaga in Spain to catch up rather than one of them taking a 300-kilometre train trip demonstrates just how broken our approach to transport-related greenhouse emissions currently is. Between them, Lucy and Zara, two 20-somethings, added over a metric tonne of CO2 to the atmosphere. 50 times more than if one of them had travelled by train between Birmingham and Newcastle and returned home, which would have been about 20 kilograms of CO2. But who can blame them when the combined cost of their flights to Spain was less than 80 pounds, as opposed to 105 pounds for one of them just to take the train? The travel choices made by these two young women cut to the heart of the transport-related carbon emissions problem. Are we really ready to put our money where our mouths are when it comes to reducing transport related carbon emissions? Even if we think we're ready to embrace change, what are the alternatives to fossil fuel power transport and when will they be available? Let's start by having a look at our options to reduce the 2% of global emissions associated with air transport. Now, key issue with flying is a trade-off between the weight of the energy source an aircraft has to carry to power the aircraft during its flight, and the leftover weight available that the aircraft can carry to sell as payload, be that freight, such as mail or your delivery from Amazon, or human passengers. The main reason that oil source jet fuel, which is otherwise known as kerosene, is used in jets is because jet fuel packs over 80 times the amount of energy as the same amount of energy that you could store in an equivalent weight of lithium batteries 80 times more and this is one of the most seductive things about fossil fuels is the unbelievably large amount of energy you can store in fossil fuels compared to current battery technology Now, one way to deal with the poor energy density of batteries is to offset the weight with a substance lighter than air. Much like how a life jacket works when you put one on and float in water, Hindenburg disaster did little for the reputation of airships. However, helium-floated hybrid aircraft are being prototyped right now, including solar-powered models. Unfortunately, none offer anything like the range, speed, and payload combination of a modern jetliner. But perhaps some could play a role on short routes. In the meantime, the aviation industry is focused on improving jet engine efficiency and fuel economy, typically by fitting ever larger, but fewer, jet engines to aircraft. Unfortunately, however... Retrofitting the new large engines can destabilise older jet designs. The world publicised Boeing 737 MAX crashes and subsequent 737 MAX fleet groundings were caused by Boeing trying to avoid the time and expense of designing a new jet optimised for the new, bigger engines. Instead, they tried to squeeze the bigger engines under the wings of the old 737 design. And they didn't quite fit and this meant there was an increased risk of a 737 lifting its nose up during flight which would then stall and just fall out of the sky. They tried to deal with this stall risk by a software hack that was designed to gently push the jet nose down if the various avionic kit on the aircraft detected a risk of stalling. However, The software was so poorly implemented that, unfortunately, two brand new 737 MAX jets dive straight into the ground just after takeoff, taking the lives of all aboard. Crashes like these don't mean the industry shouldn't continue to work on optimising jet engine fuel efficiency and reducing fossil fuel emissions as a consequence. However, it's unlikely that further efficiency improvements nor substituting natural gas or hydrogen for oil-derived kerosene as jet fuel, nor sourcing so-called sustainable jet fuel, will appreciably offset increasing greenhouse emissions associated with the expected growth of jet travel over the next couple of decades. Getting back to Lucy and Zara, if we're serious about reducing air transport greenhouse emissions, we just need to disincentivise flying, particularly discretionary flying. At the very least, this must include looking at pricing in comparison to greener terrestrial and maritime alternatives. So let's have a look at land. Some of you may have seen what may go down as one of the great Twitter burns of all time. That is Greta Thunberg responding to Andrew Tate when he was bragging about his petrol-guzzling fleet of vehicles. She wrote back, Yes, please do enlighten me email me at smalldickenergy at Now, fortunately, not everyone is as galvanised by Small dick Energy as Andrew Tate. However, merely transitioning from a petrol-powered vehicle to an electric vehicle, or EV, is not necessarily as green as one might think. In terms of greenhouse emissions, it needs to be recognised that in most cases, the source of power for an EV is the local power grid. This means that the greenness of EVs is basically a reflection of the greenness of the local grid. So if coal is burnt when it is cloudy, or dark, or the wind isn't blowing, then coal is what is powering your EV. Now small EVs with limited range, less than 100 kilometres, ranging from e-bikes and scooters to one or two-person, inexpensive, plug-in, electric and hybrids, are experiencing exponential growth across the developed and developing world cities. And collectively they offer genuine competition to mass transit options, such as trains, trams and buses. These small EVs compete on greenhouse emissions, travel times, cost and mineral use resource criteria. Notwithstanding the safety issue, however, of separating fast-moving e-scooters and the like from both pedestrian traffic and car traffic. Unfortunately, we can't say the same thing about large, powerful, long-range EVs. Things designed to travel easily 250 kilometres and perhaps towing a heavy load. Replacing large conventional cars tradesman utility vehicles and long-haul trucks while simultaneously reducing overall emissions depends in large part on solving three R's, addressing range anxiety, shortening recharge times and sourcing renewable or other non-emitting sources of energy around the clock and during all times of the year. Leaving aside current unrealistic expectations of renewable storage Recharge times remain problematic with current battery technology. Recharge time is money lost for tradesmen, delivery, taxi or ride share, and truck drivers. Also, the wisdom of consuming large quantities of copper and lithium to extend the range of large EVs to current petrol and diesel-powered equivalents is also questionable, given the additional vehicle weight with the associated road wear, even longer recharge times, and the upgrades to power grids that would be needed. Fortunately, proven greener alternatives to pure petrol or diesel powered long-range large vehicles are available. Most larger automotive manufacturers offer compressed natural gas or CNG as an alternative to petrol or diesel, with about a 30% reduction in emissions. CNG vehicles number in the tens of millions worldwide already. Petrol or diesel powered electric hybrids typically half fuel consumption compared to non-hybrid equivalents, and currently outsell pure EVs 2 to 1 in Australia. Together, they add up to just under 10%. Here in Australia, long-distance travel to locations with limited rapid recharge access to EVs is commonplace probably explains why hybrids are so popular here. With the caveat that natural gas isn't reticulated everywhere, compressed natural gas hybrids, which offer a 30% improvement over petrol or diesel, would further improve the benefits you get from a hybrid and perhaps would rival pure grid-charged EVs for both fuel economy and greenhouse emissions. Cutting over existing vehicle fleets to CNG hybrids seems a fairly logical step to consider for delivery, taxi ride-sharing, bus-trucking, and government agencies serving large population centres with access to natural gas. But let's look at the particular issue of long haul trucking and whether or not we might need to head back to the future. Instead of clogging up our roads with large EV trucks, lorries and semi-trailers, what if we instead invented a system of linking large numbers of trailers together behind a single powerful truck? then also define major arterial routes for these very long vehicles for all but the last few miles. The reason for doing that would be so that you could supply electricity along that route safely without affecting anyone else. From either overhead or from the ground, while the trucks were in motion, rather than load up such large, powerful EV trucks with heavy, slow-charging batteries, they wouldn't need any storage at all. Given the routes would be defined and power easily supplied, you could put this heavy traffic on a special purpose road. You know, perhaps using a rocky ballast individual sleepers to hold down steel rails to accommodate the right weight, rather than an easily potholed asphalt or fracturable concrete slab conventional road. Yes, you know where I'm going. Reinvention, upgrade or electrification of conventional rail networks emerges as the most rational and reasonable low emissions choice for most land transport requirements, no matter what needs to be moved where. Only the very longest journeys where grid power supply is infeasible, things like the Indian Pacific, which goes about 4,000 kilometres across the entire Australian continent, would be better served by either a diesel, or even better, a compressed natural gas rail engine. Clearly however, as the illustration of the 220 somethings from the UK illustrates, rail pricing in comparison to fossil fuel powered alternatives will continue to influence the extent and rate of transition to electric rail. So let's now turn to shipping, and by this I mean things moving across oceans. In our everything from everywhere globalised world, 90% of every good is moved by the commercial maritime fleet, which accounts for about 3% of total greenhouse emissions. There is re-emerging interest in nuclear power to abate these emissions, particularly those of long-distance large bulk materials and container ships, which are better suited to nuclear power than smaller ships travelling short distances. While technically feasible, Transitioning a significant portion of the large, long-distance fleet to nuclear power would require massive alterations to commercial shipping ports and processes worldwide. So working through the many complex steps, from technical feasibility to safe and secure commercial nuclear shipping reality, would take a fair bit of time. And unlike for current military use, there's also piracy and commercial cost-effectiveness not just reliability and emissions reductions to consider. The current instability in the Red Sea where commercial shipping is under constant attack and being actively diverted is hardly favourable to a nuclear power transition. But what about pure electric ships using battery power? The weight and size penalty of batteries is less of a problem for maritime shipping than for land and air transport. Coastal shipping in particular may be a viable target for an electric ship transition as battery costs continue to fall. However fossil fuels will still likely power most ships traveling blue water routes for at least the next couple of decades. It is reasonable to expect a gradual transition from sour also known as high sulfur content fuel oil to cleaner fuels including liquefied natural gas But the transition won't be quick without significant commercial incentives ironically a short-term adverse climate effect of cleaner fuels will be less sulfur-induced haze and cloud formation over the world's oceans the clouds and haze from burning sulfur helps reflect the sun's heat from our rapidly warming oceans so what can we conclude stepping back it is important to recognize that half the world you know think india china Indonesia et al is still on a path of increasing economic development and this will bring with it concomitant increases in expectations for lifestyle consumption and transport as a consequence it's hard to see global transport greenhouse emissions declining much at all over the next couple of decades with a singular exception of a return to electrified whale we seem to be facing least worse rather than good energy supply options for most transport modalities. Substituting oil products and coal for natural gas emerges as a fairly rational choice in the short term, but methane is a potent greenhouse gas in its own right. As I was preparing this podcast, Joe Biden announced his pause in natural gas export permits, which means even natural gas may be hard to come by for some of these particular opportunities for quite some time, which means we may be stuck with dirtier coal and oil, literally for decades, as dismal as that sounds. Of course, we can all reduce our own discretionary travel and consumption, and in that vein, car brain thinking is clearly an issue that needs to be combated. Our use of cars and our building of roads illustrates Jevons' paradox, And that is, as if we're foolish enough to keep building roads, we can expect ever more cars on them and their emissions to plague us. Perhaps something to think about the next time you're stuck in traffic. Until next time, thank you for listening, and I look forward to more of your feedback over at thisnanoplife.net. Bye for now.